Well, Mark 13 is our text today. And this is the 30th week that we've been in the gospel of Mark. We've had some breaks along the way, but if you were to add them all up, this is week number 30, and we are in Mark 13. And to help you understand what's about to unfold in this chapter, I want you to take an imaginary trip with me to your nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and you're taking a tour of Washington with Jesus, okay? And so you tour the city, you're looking at different things, you come out of the U.S. Capitol, you go down to the National Mall, you walk to the Washington Monument, and you look back and you say to Jesus, this is an amazing set of buildings. This is a lot of history, the architecture, this It's going to be leveled, flattened. You would probably have some questions. You'd have multiple questions. Like, okay, if, if, can you let me know when that's going to happen? I want to make sure I'm not in town. You might even have questions about, well, if that's the end of D.C., does that mean there's an end to other things? And what does that say about the world? And you just have a lot of questions, wouldn't you? Rightly so. Well, that's perhaps... A, a hypothetical scenario to help you understand what's happening in Mark 13. But the issue is not America. The issue is Jerusalem. Look with me at the first four verses just for a second. Here's Mark 13, one through four. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's going to be flattened. It's going to be leveled. And as would be true for you, it was true for them. They had some questions, but they weren't able to ask them at that moment because they were in the temple. It would have been a weird conversation to talk about its destruction around those who highly prized it, probably worshipped it. And so they cross over the brook, they leave the temple, they go to the Mount of Olives. They're probably looking back on the city proper, the gates and the walls. And they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately, tell us. So now they're, they're finally gonna ask the questions they've been thinking about. And there's two of them. Tell us, when will these things be? And these things refer to verse two. This prediction that it's all coming down. There's not going to be one stone left on another. Okay, when will these things be? Here's the second question. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The word accomplished there is a key word. Matthew's record of this same conversation, he words it like this. He says that the disciples said, when will these things happen? And then what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Mark just simply, succinctly summarizes it by saying the word accomplished. It's the same thing. When is, watch this now, when is the event going to occur? Say the word event with me, event. And when's the end coming? Say the word end. I want you to lock those two words in your mind because they will help you understand this chapter. The disciples have two questions. When's that event you're predicting? And when's the end of everything? Now understand that they considered both of them connected because in their mind, the temple Formerly, the tabernacle was the place of God's presence, the place of worship. It's the centerpiece of Jewish life. And so if that's torn down, if that's destructed, if that's leveled, 
what's left? I mean, it must be the end. So they're connecting both those things. This is the, the question at hand. And what follows is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And that's just given that real fancy name because it was a teaching moment on the Mount of Olives, but they kind of make it sound all fancy with the words Olivet Discourse. By the way, this is the longest teaching portion in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 13. But you know, it's the shortest version of the Olivet Discourse. If you go to Matthew, it's two whole chapters. Luke, it's Luke 21. And so this was a rather lengthy conversation, teaching moment for Christ as he helps them prepare for what? Two things. Say it with me. The event and the end. He's going to answer their questions. What I want to do is this today. I want to read his answer just straight through without much commentary, which is difficult for me, but I don't think I can do it. We'll just read through about verse 27. I'll tell you what 28 through 37 is about as well, but we're going to mainly read his answer. Then we'll come back, get an overview of it, and we'll talk about it. And I want to try to help you understand his answer to their questions initially. But we'll see that really that's not the main point. And then we'll see actually from the text what is his main point. So we're kind of baking a cake. We're going to get the, get the ingredients, put them all in a pan. We're going to put them in the oven, and then we're going to see what comes out. It'll be one beautiful, hopefully uh, edible cake for you this morning. So let's read his answer to the two questions, beginning in verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. I think that's an interesting uh, beginning of how he's answering the question. They're wondering about the event and the end, and he's actually saying, first of all, by the way, when you see all these happening, it won't be the end. He continues, this must take place. Excuse me, verse eight. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are just the beginning of the birth pains. So delivery is right around the corner, but what you're seeing is gonna be just the beginning of that. So be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think he's generally answering that first question, when will these things be? He's saying after a great deal of deception, division, disaster, distress, it's after those things. In the middle of those, don't think the end has happened. It's after those things. Those are just the beginning of things. That's kind of what he's saying. He continues his answer in verse 14. And I think here he begins to answer the second question about the sign. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand this. He says, when you see that, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down. 
nor enter his house to take anything out and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So it not only gets increasingly difficult before the sign, indicating that the end is kind of beginning, we'll call it, but apparently when the sign occurs, it'll be exponentially tragic and difficult. And yet he says at the beginning of 21 and 22, when this occurs, still don't believe that I came. And there'll be those who will say, look, he's over there. Look, he's over here. He's saying, don't believe it. I've still not come. It's interesting, isn't it? They're wanting to know about the end. And he keeps saying, don't believe it when they tell you I've come. Be on your guard. Be watchful. It's going to get increasingly difficult. And people will say, he must have already come. Don't believe them. Then he says in verse 24, but in those days, that's the same phrase as used in verse 17 and verse 18. In those days of this tribulation, and he says after that tribulation, so in those days when things from 14 to 23 happen, after it's over, watch this next phrase now. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So now he's answering the question about when's the end, when it's accomplished, when, when are you coming? He says, you'll see this after that tribulation. And then he will send out his angels and will gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So that's the answer. And in the beginning in verse 28, he gives an illustration of the event. So 28 to 31 is an illustration about the destruction of the temple that he predicted. And then 32 through 37 is an illustration concerning the end and how we're to posture ourselves in light of his coming. So I won't read through those. Travis will cover that and he'll look back a little bit, in fact, to 24 to 27 next week when he wraps up this chapter. My goal is to just help you understand the answer. We read it straight through. And can I say to you, I don't think when Jesus gave the answer, I don't think he had flipboards and charts and graphs. I don't think he was laying out timelines. I think his goal was to make this as simple as possible for his disciples. Would you agree with that? He's not... Uh, the master deceiver. He's not the master confuser. He's the master communicator. And so I think what we're going to find is this. He gave them a very clear and, I believe, simple answer to understand about the event and the end. And I want to try to bring some insight into that this morning. Here's the overview of the chapter just by way of review. We've kind of laid this out in a lot of words, but I'll just give it to you succinctly. I think the chapter lays out this way. 
There's questions, there's an answer, and there are illustrations. So we read mainly the answer and the questions. We'll let Travis deal with the illustrations next week. Just know this is kind of how Mark 13 lays out. Questions, answer, and illustrations. What I want to deal with is the answer, because here's why. In all frankness, I don't know anyone who's got issues with the questions. You know that? And to be very honest, I only know a few people who have issues with the illustrations. No one argues about the questions and really no one argues about the illustrations. Where do most of us find the stumbling points and the difficulty? It's in the answer, wouldn't you agree? Like we ask, okay, what's historical? What's prophetic? What's in the past? What's in the future? What's now? Like We just sometimes don't know. Would you admit that? Like, I don't know how to read this. Is is it about me? Is it about them? Is it about someone after me? Like, what's going on here, Todd? Let's see if we can bring some clarity to that, okay? To do so, I want to just analyze Christ's answer, and I want to give you what I think is true about this text and what he was saying to them. So, Let's look, first of all, at verses 5 through 13. I think these verses address things that occurred between about 30 A.D. and about 70 A.D. Now, you've got to give me some room on the years here, okay? Um, Christ was probably crucified in the 30 A.D. range. Some would say 33 A.D., but if you believe he was born a little before, like 4 B.C., then you're going to be about 30 A.D. So we won't argue those dates, except we'll just give it a round figure. Around 30 A.D., he's crucified, he ascends, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and the, and the church is birthed. And for the next 40 years, you find events and situations that historically are represented by what Christ predicts here in 5 through 13. In fact, let me just challenge you to do something. I won't go through all of them, but especially verses 9, 10, and 11, you find many things that the book of Acts records, such as standing before Governors and kings. This was the Apostle Paul's life in many ways. You look at the phrase beaten in synagogues, delivered over to councils. This is many of the early apostles, even there in Jerusalem, um, beaten for their faith, told to stop preaching. You see the idea of the gospel being first proclaimed to all nations before the end comes. This is what happened in the book of Acts. The book of Acts records the acts of the Holy Spirit empowering the early believers to take the gospel. Watch this, Acts 1.8 to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And by the end of the book of Acts, Paul says that to the known world, the gospel had gone. So I think what you have in verses 5 to 13 are um, an accounting of things that occurred between about 30 AD and 70 AD, those first 40 years of the church, in which it was extremely difficult, dangerous, to name the name of Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us that those very followers had their houses plundered. You read of the martyrdom of Stephen and Acts. And you could just list many more things like this. In other words, it really does mirror what's, what Christ describes here, what he actually prophesies here. So keep this in mind, which is why at the end of 13, he says the one who endures to the end will be saved. So he's encouraging his disciples, do not let go of your confession Do not turn back because the end that you're talking about, the event we're looking at in the end, it's going to happen, but it won't be till after things like deception, division, disaster, distress. So the answer to question one is this. 
Yes, these events will occur. This destruction of the temple is going to occur, but after some things first, and he lays those out. And then he says, here's the sign that we're nearing that moment. Verse 14, he calls it the abomination of desolation. And I believe verse 14 through 23 is a passage of scripture that that depicts events especially in 70 AD with the ransacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Now let me talk to you about this crazy phrase, the abomination of desolation. If you read Matthew's account, he credits that to Daniel the prophet. So you ought to kind of earmark Daniel 9 when this is first mentioned. Daniel was written in about the 6th century B.C. And Daniel prophesied that at some point in the future, one would come who would just completely desecrate and blaspheme the temple. Well, around 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes did exactly this. He comes into the temple. He ransacks it. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. He erects a statue of Zeus, a blasphemous act to the Jewish people. Daniel's prophecy came true. Christ here is saying, when you see something like that in the current, that's what the phrase, let the reader understand, it's a parenthetical, kind of like, um, not warning, but a parenthetical guide to say, hey, when, when you see that, that's what I'm talking about. So understand, reader, you're looking for something like that. Because that phrase would have been common to the Jews. Oh, we know what the abomination of desolation is. Daniel talked about it. We saw it fulfilled Oh, so when we see that again, something like that, we should do what? He says, man, hit the road. If you're in Judea, get to the mountains. Don't go back to your house. Don't try to get your belongings. Can I be this honest? Pray you're not pregnant and nursing because the tribulation will be so great and intense. It'll be unlike anything you've ever seen. I believe this is describing the ransacking and the burning of the holy city and the destruction of the temple. This is the sign that the temple's about to come down. Now, did this occur? It did in 70 AD. The emperor Titus rode into Jerusalem. Luke describes in chapter 21 how his armies had surrounded the city. He rides in. He, decla- he claims himself to be victor. Lord is another way you could say that. He tears down um, their worship items and he now claims it as his own. It was a, an event similar to the one in 168 BC. And Christ here says, when you see that, that's the signal, watch this, that the end is, watch now, watch church, end is near. That all things are about to be accomplished. He didn't say the end is now. He says the end is near. Why do I say that to you? Because if you look at verse 21, here's what's so interesting. As he describes the horrific tribulation of those days, you would think he would say, okay, so when this happens, it's the sign the end's happened, so guess what? Look around, I would have come, you'll find me, and and we'll call it good. He doesn't. He actually says the opposite. And I think this is a stark stark thing about the, the, the discourse. He says, when you see this sign which is a culmination of 40 years of great intense persecution. When you see that sign, that's when you know the end is nearing. But guess what? 
It doesn't mean the end is here because they're going to say, oh, the Christ is there. The Christ is here. Do not believe them. In other words, they're going to say, I've returned, but I haven't returned. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? It's like he's signaling something to them. Guys, everyone's going to want to say, yep, Christ has come back. That's what happened here. He's saying, no, don't believe that. Instead, wait, verse 24, till in the days after that tribulation, that's when I'll be coming. He describes his coming beginning in verse 24 through about verse 26. And when he comes, of course, he'll send out angels. They'll gather the elect from the ends of the earth. And so here's how I would say verses 24 to 27. I believe verses 24 to 27 describe things that are happening from 70 AD to now. So I'll give it to you in a numerical fashion again. Five through 13, about 30 AD to 70 AD. 14 to 23, 70 AD and the destruction of the temple and the ransacking and the burning of Jerusalem. The massacre of the Jewish people. You can read the works of Josephus to find out more about this. It's incredibly horrifying and um, heart-rendering. And then beginning in 24 to 27, 70 AD forward, and then 28 through 37 are two illustrations of it. Now, what you should be asking at this point is, Todd, how do you draw from 24 to 27 that it's 70 AD forward? It's a very good question. Let me explain to you how I get there. When you're looking at prophetic scriptures, you have to be willing to say this, that the prophet often would stand on one mountain peak and see another mountain peak, and he would prophesy about that one, but he would not often know how much time was in between the two. This was true in Christ's first advent. The prophets would say that the Messiah's coming, a virgin will give birth, and they would talk about it in different ways, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, but they didn't know when. They just knew it was going to happen. So they'd prophesy, and so they would wait. Is it now? Is it next? And just often they'd keep waiting, you know, century after century. But it did eventually happen. I think the same thing's happening here. That in verse 24, he references what is occurring in 14 through 23 by saying those were terrible days of tribulation, but after those days, then I'll come. And there's this signal that, okay, so after those days, how long? We just don't know. There's this kind of prophetic jump to say, we don't know how far away that next mountain is, that peak of my coming, but it's after the tribulation of these days, and then there's this long waiting period. I'd remind you, it's been thousands of years, you're right, but what did Peter say to those who are waiting for Christ to return? That a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. So it seems like a long time to you, but guess what? It doesn't seem like a long time to God. Now, do I think that the writers and the believers of the New Testament heard this and said, okay, after that tribulation, we're looking for him to come? I do. They saw the sign. They knew that meant the end was near, and so they were waiting. And so much of the New Testament, when you read it, the sense is that those believers were, were expecting Christ to return in their lifetime, and rightly so. I hope you're expecting Christ to return in your lifetime. But he may not. He may still be waiting because long-suffering is one of his traits, so that all would come to repentance, Peter says. And so I tend to think there is this kind of, I call it a prophetic jump. That may not be the best word. It's the word that I, I like. Between 23 and 24, in which he says, here's the tribulation of that period, 
And by the way, after that, I'll come again. And we just don't know how long this time period is. Now, that bothers you. If you're like, I don't know if I can agree like, to this prophetic jump, I have news for you. Everybody makes one. Do you know that? Everybody makes a jump. Because has Christ returned yet? The answer is no. Acts says that Christ will return in the same way he went, which is bodily, personally, and visibly. Acts chapter one. Christ has not returned in that way yet in his second advent. So we are waiting. So the question is not, Todd, why did you make this prophetic jump? Why do you put it in 23 through 24? That seems like it shouldn't be allowed. Who does that? The, question, the answer is everyone does that. In fact, let me walk you through how people do that. Some put the prophetic jump before verse five. And they say everything about 13, or whether it's Matthew 24 and 25 or Luke 21, they say all that information is future. It's all about Israel. It discusses the Jews. So none of it's about today. There are people that, that hold that view. There are those that hold the view that the jump is between 13 and 14. And they say the abomination of desolation, it's a different event than Titus. It's something that's gonna happen in a newly rebuilt temple in the future. They have a jump. Some see the jump like I do between 23 and 24 in more of a historical, and I would say probably more literal fashion. And some see the jump actually between 26 and 27. You may have not heard this, you may not know this, but... Some do not see 24, 25, and 26 as the coming of Christ to the earth. They see it as the coming of Christ to the Father. They would go to Daniel 9 and say, this is when Christ came to the ancient of days and he received his power and authority because the temple was gone. And so they see the jump between 26 and 27 and then they see his coming as when he sends out angels and gathers his elect. That's his coming to the earth. So guess what? No one gets by not making a prophetic jump. You've got to figure out how in the world does Christ talk about the future to guys in the present? I think the most textually correct answer is the one that says halfway through 14 through 23, around 17 and 18, he begins to talk about those days. Do you see that? The word those days in 17, the word those days in 18, then again, those days in 24. And by the way, a singular reference to that in verse 32, he says that day. Here's what's happening. Here's what I think Christ is doing. He's describing in 14 to 23 the the destruction of the temple and the desecration that will signal it's coming. But about halfway through that answer, what's gonna happen in 70 AD, he begins to use Old Testament language. It's the phrase, those days. It's used five times at least in the Old Testament. Jeremiah and Joel contain it. And it's a word that simply means the eschaton, which is a fancy way of talking about the end times, the end of the age. Christ is employing in times language to discuss not only what's beginning it here, but what his coming will follow. And he uses the phrase those days, after those days, then I'll come. In verse 32, you don't know the, the time or the hour of that day. So those are reasons that I hold to the, the prophetic jump between 23 and 24, which means I do think Christ will come after a period of tribulation but he will come bodily, personally, and visibly as 24, 25, and 26 describe. Now, that's a lot of information for you. Let me see if I can summarize for you because I've given you the answers, really. When will these things be? He says in question, to question one, after much, and I call them the D4s, deception, division, disaster, distress. 
That's when these things will happen, after a period of that. But what's the sign that it's gonna be beginning? It'll be the temple's desecration. So you call it five Ds, right? But even then, he doesn't give them an exact time of his coming. Stay awake and be watchful and be vigilant. So let me see if I can give it to you in a summary. It's a lot of words here in this slide. Take a picture of it. Uh, this is the best that I could come up with to try to make this simple, okay? And in all frankness, I think it's a pretty good paragraph. So I want you to kind of grab this. It'll help you understand Mark 13. Essentially, Mark 13 lays out for us a description of events up to and including the destruction of the temple. Verses five through 13 refer to events that characterize the entire period from AD 30 to AD 70. None of which in and of themselves are the sign that the end of the age or the temple's destruction are immediate. Verses 14 through 23, however, they describe the one sign that indicates the predicted destruction is about to occur. Now watch this. And this marks the fact that it's coming. The subject of verses 24 to 27 is near it's just not now. So that's an examination of the answer. And you can see why many folks have trouble with the answer, right? We don't mind the question and we don't mind the illustrations, but man, the answer can be hard to figure out. I don't think it was intended to be. And if we analyze it historically, textually, even linguistically and prophetically, I think we gather this understanding from Mark 13. Now, I don't find that answer to be the point of this chapter, though. You may say, really? You just spent how many minutes talking, to, talking us through his answer and end times perspectives, and you don't think that's the point? I don't. Because woven through his answer to their two questions are nine warnings. Nine imperatives. And if you want to find the heartbeat of this text, then you must look at the nine imperatives. Can I show them to you briefly? I won't discuss them at length. Let me just show you where they are. Verse five, one time he says, do not be led astray. In fact, this opens his entire answer. Don't be led astray, guys. Verse seven, he says, do not be alarmed. Then in verse 21, he says, do not believe it. Then three times, verse 9, verse 23, and verse 33, he says, be on guard. The sense is there to have your mind uncluttered, to be thinking clearly. And then three times, verse 33, 35, and 37, he says to stay awake. And by the way, if there's any Gregs in this room, the word for stay awake, the Greek word stay awake, is the word from which we get the name Gregory. Your name means watchful, awake. So there are five warnings. He repeats two of them three times. So really what you have is nine warnings, nine admonitions, nine strong exhortations. Watch this. Not to focus on predicting the future, but being faithful in the present. And this is the big idea of the chapter. As followers of Christ, they want to get caught up in predicting the time, the date, they would be focused on following faithfully in the present. And so he warns them nine times, guys, be careful, be vigilant, stay awake, be on guard. There'll be lots of folks who want to tell you that I've come 
And it won't be true. There'll be folks who want to, you know, maybe timeline you to death, chart you to pieces. He says, listen, don't let those things distract you. Don't be preoccupied with the date. Be focused on being faithful in the present. You see, they weren't to be deceived or anxious about the end times. They were to instead to be on guard during the end times. And they were in the end times. You realize that, don't you? When Pentecost occurred and Peter preached to those crowds, he said this, in these last days. So Peter was remembering what Christ told him. He knew they had a period of intense persecution headed their way to be signaled by this abomination of desolation, at which point the end would be close and near. We just don't know how near. And so we're waiting for his coming. This is what Peter preached. It's what the disciples all knew. They were not to be deceived or anxious about the end times. They were in them. They were to be on guard during them. This is why the need of the hour for them and for us in church, hear me with every ear you have. This is why the need of the hour for them and for us, watch this, is endurance, not information. And we are an information craving people, aren't we? In my hands up, I love trivia, new things, ideas. I just like to read and absorb and, and you know, kind of analyze and debate. And when it's about the end times, I can like, get sucked into people like Harold Camping, who, a false teacher, trying to set dates, and other folks who try to figure out the timeline. And this is the very thing Christ is warning against. Do not be preoccupied with, the, with predicting the future. Instead, man, be focused on following faithfully in the present. I'd remind you, this is what pastors should repeat to their people. Like I've told you this before, that endurance is the need of the hour. I've mentioned this for years and I'm gonna keep repeating it because we do tend to get preoccupied and, and we drift and we lose our focus. These guys did, his disciples. Did you know that? In fact, this is Mark 13, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection. They're asking, hey, when's the end coming? What's the end of the age? When's your kingdom gonna land? Guess what they do in Acts chapter one? Christ has been crucified, he's been resurrected. They're waiting for his ascension, and guess what they ask him? Acts one, verses six, seven, and eight. Hey, Jesus, about that kingdom coming deal, like, can we talk about that again? Like, when's it gonna be restored? And he says to them, watch this church, listen. He says, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. Instead, it's for you to receive the power of the Holy Spirit for witnessing. That's, the, that's what the church should hear. Man, quit trying to figure out the when and let's get busy about the what, which is being witnesses in the present to those who don't yet know Christ. His coming apparently has been, from our perspective, I'll use air quotes here, delayed. Now, it's actually God's long-suffering in action. But from my perspective, there's this long delay. There's this, this gap, this, this time period after the tribulation that we're waiting for him to come. Guess what? Christ is, is long-suffering. We should be on mission, sharing Christ, uh, telling folks about Jesus so that they can be saved, so that when he comes, they're ready. And sometimes we sit and occupy ourselves with charts and graphs and dates, and we aren't even aware that some of our closest friends and neighbors don't even know Christ. It's information 
that distracts us, at least in regards to the end times, when the need of the hour is endurance. In fact, I would say to you, that may very well be the truest key word of the entire New Testament. Endurance. Spiritual stamina. Faithfulness. stick to Holding fast your confession of faith. You say, well, Todd, if that's the need of the hour, if that's truly what Christ was pointing to, if that's the point of this passage, how do you get endurance? That's a good question. And the answer is one word, relationship. Let me prove that to you contextually. In this context, in this chapter, in this surrounding time frame, he's three days before the cross, Christ's main concern is his followers. Do you recall how we divided up the book of Mark? He's serving the crowds in those first few chapters, and then he begins to focus on his cadre, his brothers. As the cross gets ever so close, he's focused on making sure they're prepared and ready and equipped and grounded. He's spending time in relationship with them, feeding them, teaching them. Abide in me and I in you. These are the kinds of things he's just really laying into them on. And then, of course, as Mark 14 gets here, we see him serving his father and being crucified and being raised. This is in the section in which he's serving his brothers. And he's really leaning into them heavily with relationship. Why? Because he knows that the deeper they go into him, the better they'll endure. Endurance is fueled by relationship. Now watch this. You also know this intuitively. I'm gonna speak very plainly to you for a few moments. Everyone listen, no one leaving You know this intuitively, especially if you're married. If your marriage is weak and cold, you're barely hanging on, man, temptations and fatal attractions come at you, that's a dangerous equation, especially if you have a job that makes you travel. You get out from under the accountability of your faith family, even of your own physical family, you're traveling and suddenly a, another person who may be better looking, younger or whatever, and they just begin to appeal to you. And many men and or women have fallen into adultery and immorality when they were away from their spouse because they weren't building the paramount important relationship at home. They did not have the endurance, watch this, to resist temptation because they didn't have a relationship. Now, I'm not saying that makes the adultery wrong, right. What I'm saying is the way you fortify yourself against temptation is to build a strong relationship with your spouse. If you don't think that people aren't tempted, you're not living in the real world. Man, there are temptations to both men and women and it would be, wise to build a healthy, strong, I say a lot, a hot marriage. So when the devil comes at you and tries to get you to commit terrible, vow-debilitating, vow-breaking acts, that you have a, a strong relational fire that fuels the endurance you need for 30, 40, 50 plus years of marriage. 
So you know intuitively that relationship fuels endurance. You know that. And the same thing is true spiritually. You will only endure to the degree that you love and prize Jesus above all. Now, endurance is a Holy Spirit-empowered thing. And God will keep secure all those who are truly his. He will enable you to endure. I believe that. The perseverance of the saints. He says here that he's the one who intervenes and makes sure the elect aren't led astray. So we know it's God-empowered. But in this relationship that has been initiated and sustained by Christ, we have this part we play of relating to him. And if... Just be aware, you're going to find endurance difficult, perhaps impossible. You may find that the trials will be almost revealing that you don't have endurance if you're not responding to the relationship Christ has initiated with you. Relationship fuels endurance. That's why it's so imperative we keep the gospel front and center, not only in our corporate gatherings, but in our personal um, interactions. That God saw us, as we sang before, in our helpless estate, running our hellbound race, and God in his sovereign love and mercy went after us, church. He sought us. He sent Jesus to live the life we could never live. He met every standard of perfection. He obeyed the law. He satisfied every bit of God's demands, and then he applied that righteousness to those sinners who, who were lost. That's the grace and mercy of God on your behalf. And now God invites you to continue to relate to him, to know his grace and mercy on a continuing basis, to devour his word, to be filled by his spirit, to pray to him. These are all things that are part of a relationship. That's what fuels endurance. And I'm convinced that as we enjoy him now, we will endure for him later. And the reason many of us perhaps find endurance difficult is that we have no concept of enjoyment. And I want to call you with clarion conviction this morning to enjoying Christ as the beautiful highest treasure of your life. There is nothing that can compare to him. He's beyond description. He's beyond beauty. He's the majestic lover of your soul. He's the forgiver of your sins. He's the almighty, the rock, the refuge. Jesus is everything. He's the one we're waiting on. And so I want to call you to enjoying that relationship so that that enjoyment fuels your endurance. That's what's necessary as we wait for the return of Jesus here in these end times. I think this is exactly what Paul said to Titus. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he rehearses Christ's first advent and talks about a second advent. And he uses both as means to say, as you wait, keep these in, in, uh, in your full view. In fact, can we read those as we close? I'm gonna have you stand with me, would you, first family? And let's then read these verses as we wrap up this look at Mark 13. And look how Paul, in writing to the believers at Crete, discussed both comings of Christ, the first and the second, and how he breathes the gospel in and talks about this relationship, knowing that we are waiting. We're in a period of endurance. Man, let's wait in the same way these guys were waiting. Let's read together, can we, church? 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.